0: Right, good morning. If you would please uh, open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus, we're going to look at chapters 11 to 15 this morning. Leviticus 11 to 15. It's great to be with you all. In 2006, in my home country of India, uh, there was an incident that made uh, national news. And this incident involved uh, religion and the concept of uh, ritual purity. purity. Uh, The famous uh, South Indian actress or film star uh, named Jayamala in 2006 made a public confession. And she confessed, Jayamala confessed, that 20 years previously, in the year 1986, as a young woman, she had gone to this uh, famous shrine uh, on the hill of Sabarimala, and she had somehow made it past security and all of this into the innermost precinct of uh, the shrine where she saw the uh, so-called god, the idol Ayapa and managed to even touch the idol. So Jayamala went into Mala and touched Ayapa and this was a big problem. And the reason that this was a problem is because women uh, between the age of 10 and 50 are not allowed uh, into the innermost precinct there. Uh, The God, the so-called God, Ayapa, is thought to be there as an eternally celibate idol. And so a fertile woman being there and touching him made him unclean. So the God was made unclean by the woman touching him, and the whole temple was made unclean. And this was a huge problem, and they even filed a case uh, against this movie Star. And I remember at the time a Christian friend sending me a message saying... Uh, about Ayapa, a woman touched Ayapa and made him unclean. An unclean woman touched Jesus and he made her clean. Today, this morning, we're going to talk about the true God, the God who makes us clean, who cleanses our hearts by faith and makes us pure and holy and fit for his presence. See as we come to Leviticus chapters 11 to 15 we come to the section which is called the purity laws or the laws which define what is clean and what is unclean. If you remember the theme of our book uh, Leviticus the overall theme of this book is about how to live in God's presence. How can sinful people live in the presence of a holy God and find life from him and the purity laws will show us One more way, we've seen, uh, as Leviticus began, that to live in God's presence, we need sacrifice. Last week, we saw to approach, to draw near to God's presence, we need God's appointed mediator. And this week, we'll see that in order to come into the presence of God, we must be clean. We must be clean. God's people must be distinct from this world, devoted to Him, and pure. And what we'll see is that Jesus, by his perfect sacrifice, makes us clean, makes us pure and fit for God's presence. And as those who belong to him with cleansed hearts, we must continue to desire purity in every area of life and be devoted to the Lord who makes us clean. So I've got to warn you. When we enter Leviticus chapters 11 to 15, we are entering a strange land. These laws feel very difficult and very complex. And I should just say, it just feels, being honest, it just feels weird. One scholar said, these chapters are perhaps the least attractive in the whole Bible to the modern reader There is much in them that is meaningless or repulsive. So as we go through, I'm going to have to explain a lot. It's going to feel a little bit like going to school, like Bible study for the first part. But then we'll see again how these laws lead us to Christ and His cross. All of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture is about Jesus, even the parts that feel weird. And I will try my best. I want to speak to the parents. I know there's a lot of little kids in this service. I'm going to keep this at a PG rating, okay? So you may have to have some uh, parental guidance conversations after the service and I pray God's grace for you in that. Well, In order for us to understand and apply these laws, we first need to understand what these categories mean. What does clean and unclean mean? How does clean and unclean, how does cleanness and uncleanness operate in the Levitical law? And to orient ourselves towards that, we need to go back one chapter to last week, chapter 10 and verses 8 to 10. Uh, This is after Aaron's sons died. They tried to worship God in a way that God had not commanded, if you remember. And and therefore they were killed. Uh, God consumed them by fire uh, because of the casualness with with, with which they approached his presence. And now God warns Aaron and is telling Aaron how he must be approached. how, How should we approach God? And Aaron is to teach all Israel and uphold these laws in Israel. And here's what the Lord says. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. It's a special rule for the priests. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And then he says, verse 10, this is very important. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So look again there at verse 10 we see these categories the holy and the common and then we see the unclean and the clean and those are specifications of certain kinds of status of people places things right you had holy that's one status and then you have what is common that's another status and then within within common you have these two subdivisions of status one which is unclean, and the other is clean. And I've given you a a little diagram in the bulletin, which hopefully will help you understand uh, how these categories worked. Uh, Holy, common, and then within common, unclean, and clean. And you could move, things could move between these different statuses, all right? So you could move from unclean to clean through the process of purification. You could move from clean to holy through the process of sanctification. All of that always involves sacrifices, all right? Sacrifice. And then something holy could be made common by being profaned, coming into contact with the common. And something clean could be made unclean by defilement or pollution, all right? And you know, you're thinking about that, believe it or not, uh, our current life situation here in Abu Dhabi, uh, living in the middle of the pandemic, actually helps us to understand these statuses a little more. You're very familiar with this, right? Because we go to the mall, you came to church this morning, and almost every other place that you go, what do you need to show? You show them your Al Alhosan app, and the Alhosan app will keep track of your status, It doesn't say whether you're clean or unclean, but it says whether you're green or not green. And if you're vaccinated, then you have the much-coveted and needed green status, giving you an all-access pass. If you're vaccinated and had a PCR test, you get the even better status of green with the E. The one status nobody wants and which will definitely put you out of access from every place is red status. So, I, I, and you can move between these statuses. I know, because back in February, I had the red status on my Alhosan app, and then I finally got two negative PCR tests, and I moved from red to green, and that was a nice feeling, right? So you can change between statuses. Some people are still gray, and, uh, you know, I hope that those, that situation gets uh, sorted out for you. But this is, this is the Alhosan app, and different statuses, giving you different access to different places, well, in ancient Israel, you you know, I don't know, they, they didn't have apps, but I, I, today you can call it the Al, let's call it the Al-Holy app. Alright? Al-Holy app. And you had three different statuses giving you different access in the Al-Holy app. Alright? The the best status, the one that you want, the one with the E, alright, green with the E, is the status of holy. Of holy. If something was holy, it meant that this is Devoted to God, it belongs to God. It has access into the innermost sections of the temple. It is, it has access to the immediate presence of God. It's closer to the presence of God. This is sacred, belonging to God. It, you don't just do anything. You don't put it out in the unclean place. Don't make it come in contact with what is red and unclean. All right. So you have the holy status. The the next status, which is kind of corresponds to our green status is the clean status, all right? And this was every common Israelite normal situation. That's what they wanted to be. They wanted to be clean. And to be clean meant to be fit for God's presence. It meant you were allowed inside the camp of Israel where God, the holy God, the creator of heaven and earth, dwells. You're allowed in the camp. And then the red status, the one you don't want on the Al-Holy app, uh, the bad status which cuts you off was the status of unclean. That meant you were unfit for God's presence. You were not allowed in the community of God and His people in, in the camp. You had to be outside the camp if you were unclean or impure. Now, it's very important. This is crucial, okay? If, if you don't get this right, you, the laws will be very confusing. It's crucial for us to understand that these purity laws are not talking about moral purity. They don't refer to moral cleanness. They are speaking of ritual purity. Something being ritually clean or unclean doesn't mean that it is morally clean or unclean. Something is ritually clean or ritually pure if it is appropriate and fit to be present in the presence of God and His community. And so, when we look at these chapters in Leviticus, and when we see it speaking of uncleanness, we must be careful not to equate that with guilty, all right? It just means that it's not fit for a particular place at a particular time, right? If I walk into my house, if you walk into my house, and you take off the shoes, and then you walk over to the dining table and put your shoes on the dining table, that's a problem. We all know that instinctively, all right? And it's not because the shoes are guilty of sin, it's not because the shoes are evil somehow or what you just did is evil. It's just out of place. It, it's m- mixing things that shouldn't be mixed. Right? So as one scholar said, clean and unclean refers to what is proper for a certain place and a certain time. All right? So let's be very clear when these chapters speak of uh, you know, people or certain matters as clean or unclean, whether animals or childbirth or diseases or a woman's monthly cycle of menstruation. That is not to say that they are guilty or in a state of sin. It refers to ritual purity, marking something as appropriate for the camp of Israel, for the presence of God and His community. All right. So we've seen this three basic statuses, three levels uh, that existed. Holy, clean, and unclean. And now with that orientation, we can look at chapters 11 to 15, and you'll see what these chapters lay out is five areas of uncleanness, of impurity, five areas of defilement, and it's quite simple because they all begin with D, all right, they all begin with D. The first place where we see God lay out cleanness and uncleanness is in the area of diet, diet, and this is chapter 11 with the famous food laws of ancient Israel, all right. The Lord begins by speaking, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. And then after that, he begins to give a list of things that you cannot eat. So they can't eat animals that don't have all these features. No camel allowed. No pork allowed, uh, nor rock badger, though I'm not sure many people wanted to eat that. All right? And again, many people come up with different logic or reasons or ex- theories as to why these food laws existed and what was behind them. One, uh, the, one scholar said there are as many theories as there are people who try to make the theories. All right? There are over 14 common theories that people have. So what I'm going to give you is tentative this morning. And, uh, you know, one very common theory that I want to say I don't find convincing or persuasive is that God gave these food laws for health reasons, right? The diet, laws of diet were for health reasons. You know, if you eat pork and if it's not cooked very well, then, then, you know, you can get pretty ill, or shrimp, if it's not cleaned very well, you could get ill from that. And so they'll say the reason is God wanted to, in the ancient world, what God wanted to guard is people's health. I'm not finding that convincing, because just 1,500 years later, Jesus declares, all food's clean. And I don't think the ancient medical knowledge or health knowledge advanced so much in that time that now suddenly, you know, it's, it's okay and safe to eat pork or shrimp or whatever, all right? So, plus you can get sick from eating goats too, if it's not properly cooked. So I'm not convinced this because of health. So out of all the theories, I'm just going to give you kind of like the one I think comes closest to the mark that I find the most convincing, and that is that the animals that were allowable, permitted, uh, are to be marked by wholeness and normality, all right? I think the idea of wholeness, normality, uh, actually helps us as a guide through all the laws of clean and unclean. So, for instance, uh, among the land animals, these had... Uh, cloven-footed, you know, parting the hoof and chewing the cud. They had all these features. The animals that were forbidden were half-half, right? If you look at it, the pig, you know, it's, it, it parts the hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud. And and then the others, they may chew the cud, but they don't part the hoof. So it's half-half. So it doesn't fit the category of normal, completely whole, All right. Uh, the same with sea creatures, you know, they, the ones with the fins and the scales, you were allowed to eat. That's the normal category of sea creatures. The ones that don't have that, like shrimp and lobster and all of this, you weren't allowed to eat because they don't fit the definition of normal. Well, what about these swarming creatures in, in verses 20 to 24? Again, how do, what is a normal pattern of motion, unidirectional, right? Animals don't move uh, unpredictably, kind of orderly. But swarming creatures, how do they move? They move kind of chaotically, right? unpredictable, sudden motion. And so these don't fit this sense of order, wholeness, normality. All right. Uh, they were also banned from eating predatory birds and predatory animals because the predators will eat other things, right? maybe dead things or unclean things, and then when you eat them, you become unclean. So that's one theory. Uh, That I think explains the food laws. But the more important question to ask is, what is the function of the law? What is the purpose of these laws? And I do think the Bible is quite clear on that. Look at verses 44 and following. The Lord says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. God is holy. And He has redeemed the people of Israel to belong to Him to be His. They are a holy nation. They are a people who are to be clean and just as there is a distinction in food, in diet between the clean and the unclean, God wants there to be a distinction, a separation between the nation that is His, the people who are His, and the unclean nations of the world. These laws function to distinguish, separate draw a line between God's people, Israel, and the nations through a peculiar, particular diet that sets them apart, right? So, if for a Jew, you know, an Amalekite is going to invite him to dinner and say, come, let's eat pork sandwiches, he can't have fellowship with him. There's a separation because we don't eat what you eat. We're different. So, summarize the diet Restrictions, everything that God has marked as clean is kosher. These are things you can eat. The things that God says are unclean bring defilement and must be excluded from diet. That's the first area of defilement. You could get defiled by a diet. The second category of things that defile is the category of death. and Dead things. That's in chapter 11 verses 24 to 40. Dead things. Uh, Here we'll see, you know, what if you come into contact with a dead animal or, you know, some kind of a a household lizard or something dies and falls in a pot. Uh, What do we do with that? Well, that makes you unclean. Why? Because death is incompatible with life. And God's presence is fullness of life. He is the one who is life in himself. And so if you've come into contact with the realm of death, You're not fit to enter God's presence right now because His presence is life and death and life. Don't mix. We don't have this in Leviticus, but you'd see later if you read the book of Numbers that even contact with a human corpse made you unclean. Contact with something dead makes you unclean. Yesterday I was uh, working on my sermon in the office and uh, there was a little bit of excitement outside and I came and, and Brother JP and Sister Ina were laughing about something and apparently... Uh, they found a lizard in the, one of the cupboards there, uh, running around and, uh, you know, going around the cups and things, and JP managed to trap it with, with, uh, with a cup and, and take it outside. And they were saying, talking about, oh, the, the, the thing you're preaching tomorrow, you know, does this mean, like, we would be unclean and we have to break all the cups? I said, actually not, because the lizard wasn't dead. It was alive. They only make unclean and have to break everything if it was dead, or if you eat it, you would be unclean which I don't think they want to do that, right? So first category of defilement, diet, second category, death. The third category of defilement, uh, defilement, and this could be controversial, but I'm trying to explain it to you very clearly, is delivery, all right? Delivery, in other words, childbirth, and this is in chapter 12, all right? In chapter 12, you'll see that childbirth, after a woman bears a child, she becomes unclean all right, she would be unclean for 40 days for a male child, 80 days if it was a female child. And that might make you uncomfortable, because, and it does make people uncomfortable, especially skeptics, they say, look at the God of the Bible is discriminatory against women, look at how, uh, you know, suppressive and oppressive these laws were. And I want to clarify to you again, this this chapter is not saying that there's anything wrong with childbirth, all right, the laws of clean-unclean Are not marking things out as sinful, all right? The Bible is very clear as we read Genesis, it's the Lord's command and commission for us to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. Children are a blessing from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So there's nothing wrong with childbirth, and that's the furthest idea from the truth as far as the Bible is concerned, nor is this in some way discriminatory against women, because if you're reading these chapters, you'll see that men also became unclean in a variety of ways, all right, so this is not discriminating against women. In fact, when we go to the chapter 15, you'll, you'll see again uh, bodily discharges, the monthly cycle, even sexual union and, and the natural things involved with that render people unclean. And so there are questions, why? Why then? Why, why are women unclean after childbirth? And there are a few theories. One theory is, uh, you know, it's because it involves a loss of fluids, right? And after a woman gives birth, and, and the text does talk about this, uh, there's a discharge of fluids. And when you're losing fluid from your body, it symbolizes the loss of life from your body, all right? If, if you were to cut you and you bleed, and if you keep on bleeding, what happens eventually? You die, Right, and so because of that association, the loss of life is is has taken place. Right, the sim- symbolic losing of life. Therefore, it renders a woman unclean. That's one theory. Another theory, and I kind of like this one, is that childbirth. Right, childbirth brings a woman close to the realm of death. Think about it. God cursed Adam and the, with the, after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, there's the curse of the fall. And part of that is the pains of childbirth, which God says, I multiply your pains in childbirth. And, you know, anyone of you knows that childbirth can be a harrowing process for a woman, bringing her close to the realm of death, thereby, this theory would say, renders her unclean. There's yet another theory, and I really like this one, I'm probably most convinced of this. Uh, You know, we say on the one hand, yes, the pains of childbirth are the result of the fall, But childbirth itself, human reproduction, the process of reproduction, is something that is earthly, that belongs to the earthly realm. We won't have children, won't be bearing children in heaven. There's no more reproduction in heaven. And the further you go into God's presence in the tabernacle, the more it's intended to represent the future perfect heavenly state. And since now a woman has given birth and childbirth is not going to be in heaven and and she's kind of in this condition of not being wholly normal right Right now, it renders her unclean, not able to enter the presence. Whatever the case, I want to also highlight, this law in some way actually provides practical care for the woman. She's in a vulnerable state, By placing her in some sort of isolation quarantine, she's free to recover and care for her infant without the obligations of regular life. At the end of the time of uncleanness, she brings sacrifices to be offered, and by these sacrifices, she's made ritually clean. And you might say, well, doesn't sacrifice speak of sin? So does that mean she was in sin? Again, I want to say no. There's no sin or guilt associated. Sacrifices were not offered for the particular issue of childbirth, But sacrifices were offered for sin in general. Just the fact that we're all sinners, every one of us. That a woman in any condition and a man in any condition is a sinner. It's a reminder of that. And sacrifices, blood sacrifice is always used for cleansing and purification. Both for the morally impure and for the ritually impure. Even though they've done nothing wrong by being ritually impure. Alright? So that's the third area. Of defilement, we looked at diet, death, delivery. Area number four is disease, disease, and this is in chapters thirteen and fourteen. And if you read chapter thirteen, you'll see that the text begins talking about skin conditions, and it speaks of the disease of leprosy. Uh, this is not referring to the modern disease of which we know as Hansen's disease, where a person loses a nerve sensation and in, in the extremities. and, and, you know, get severe injuries and things like this. I'm not speaking of Hansen's disease, but leprosy was a term, it's kind of a broad term used to cover a variety of different skin diseases, skin rashes. Uh, In fact, if you look at the chapter 13, there are 21 different skin conditions, all right, that are listed. Uh, And the priest is supposed to identify them. Now, he's not, you know, functioning like a doctor. He's not trying to decide, oh, is this eczema or psoriasis or, or whatnot. He's just to follow God's law and apply it. And if it was present, if you had a skin condition going on more than a week, then you were marked as unclean, as having a defiling disease. Again, nothing morally wrong or sinful with the person. They could get a skin rash all of a sudden and then you're marked unclean. Doesn't mean you were guilty of sin or did something wrong. Why the uncleanness then? Well, it represents a lack of normality. Right? Remember, whole and normal is clean Something subnormal is unclean. Disease is unclean because disease renders you unfit for God's presence because God is fullness of life. And in His presence, there is no disease. In heaven, there will be no more sickness. And this is kind of a picture representing that. Alright, so that's why disease renders them unclean. If you go to chapter 14, there are purification rituals for Someone whose leprosy had been cured or healed, and, and there's quite an elaborate ritual process to come back to clean status and be allowed back into the camp. Uh, back in February, when my Al hosen app turned red, and I was quarantined to get out of it, was quite an elaborate process. Keep driving back and forth to Mafraq Hospital, and keep taking those PCR tests only at Mafraq Hospital, and then come back, and then finally got two green PCR tests. Praise the Lord. I'm free. Well, for the the diseased guy in ancient Israel, the person with the disease of leprosy, they had to go, if if they're cured, they come to the priest. Remember, the priest cannot cure them. The priest is not a doctor prescribing a cure. They are simply being moved to clean status by the fact that they're already cured. Alright? The PCR test doesn't cure you. (laughs) Alright? It just changes your status when you've already been cured. Okay, and this is very different from the other nations around Israel and their religions, where the priests were some kind of shaman or magician who does some kind of magical rite which was supposed to bring curing. Here you realized, in Israel they recognize it is only the sovereign grace of God, our healer, that can heal us from these diseases. All right? And so... How do they then go through the process of purification to come back in the camp? Well, they had to be washed. Right, Washing with water represents cleansing. And then there was this uh, ritual with birds where they would have these two birds and one bird would be killed in sacrifice and the blood sprinkled on the person. Blood symbolizing purification. And then the other bird would be left to go free, symbolizing that this person's disease is now gone And they are free, and then they come back into the camp on the eighth day after seven more days. Why seven days and come back on the eighth day? Well, remember again, God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. And so coming in on the eighth day symbolizes that this person is sort of like a new creation. All right? Again, let's emphasize that disease doesn't mean sin. We also see laws for disease Or molds on garments, all right? And then uh, on houses. It's not the garment or the house which sinned, all right? These are just marks of defilement that make them unclean because these diseases shouldn't be in the presence of God. Okay? So we've seen four categories so far dietary items, death, delivery, disease, and finally we see discharges in chapter 15. Discharges. And as you read chapter 15, It's referring to discharges associated with the reproductive organs specifically, right. Uh, And here we'll see that there are two kinds of discharges that make unclean, both for men and for women. Uh, Chapter 15, the first 15 verses are what we'll call irregular male discharges. means he had some kind of a sickness or something leading to a discharge. Uh, Verses 16 to 18 are regular male discharges, those associated with sexual union. Verses 19 to 24 was the regular female discharge. This is the monthly cycle. All right, so for seven days every month, the woman was unclean. And then you have the irregular female discharges. And this is something like a hemorrhaging or an ongoing issue, uh, which would render a woman unclean. And again you might read that and say okay what's going on there? Why is it treating women that way? Uh, this seems kind of harsh. Uh, is sex dirty? Does that make this bad or unclean sexual union uh, and the reproductive process? And again, obviously we want to say the Bible makes it very clear. Sexual union between a husband and a wife in marriage is not sinful at all. All right? Is completely holy, sacred. And it is given by God. This is God's creation. Just go read the book of Song of Solomon and you'll see what the Bible has to say about that. That book is not exactly PG, okay? A little, little bit higher, all right? But uh, n- neither is the process of reproduction anyway unclean, okay? And again, we have the various theories. There's a loss of bodily fluids symbolizing loss of life, all right? But again, I think the best theory is the, the, the earthly, right? Sexual union is earthly. It's not part of the future perfect heavenly state that God's presence represents. And so it cannot be brought into the presence of God. And that again is in contrast with all of the other religions of the ancient world and even pagan religions of some of the modern, even today that persist, where, you know, the the, the presence of God was directly associated with all kinds of perversion, prostitution, and, and evil. All right? So uh, the religion of the Bible, what God gives to Israel, the laws of Leviticus, set Israel apart from the rest of the nations around them and clearly demonstrate what it means to live in God's presence. All right. So that's a summary of the purity laws. We've been through the Bible study part of the sermon and we've looked at all of the five areas of defilement. Well, now we've got to ask a more important question. And that is, what do these laws mean for us today? What was the purpose of these laws back then and now? What was ultimately their function? Why does God, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord God Almighty, Israel's redeemer, the holy one, our savior, why does he give his people these laws? And what does he want to say to us through these laws? And to answer that question, we're going to look at four purposes of the purity laws in these chapters. Four purposes of the purity laws. First, the purity laws teach us that we must be distinct from the world. God's people must be distinct from the world. Look again at chapter 11, verses 44 to 47. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God has saved, rescued Israel from Egypt and set apart, devoted Israel to himself. They belong to him. They must be distinct from the nations around them. Most scholars acknowledge this, that the food laws particularly were meant to separate Israel from the nations. And in the Bible, we see throughout, from the beginning to end, that God always draws a line, makes a boundary, that separates His people from those who are not His people. We see that with the line of uh, Cain, not God's people, and the line of Seth. We see that later with Noah. God brings Noah and his family into the ark, And there are those who are outside the ark who suffer the judgment of God. We see that God chooses Abraham and his family as his covenant people. And we see this with Israel. God has rescued Israel, brought them out of the land of Egypt. They belong to him and there's a line between them and the nations. But now in Christ, that boundary between Jew and Gentile, between Israel and the nations, has been removed. So that all nations in Christ can be part of the people of God. That's why the food laws don't exist anymore. Right? We see, saw this in the chapter that uh, our brother Raj read this morning from Acts chapter 11. The separation between Jews and Gentiles symbolized by the food laws is ended in Christ. That's why Peter has this dream where God tells him kill and eat and he can eat anything he wants. Yeah, Eat pork, eat lizard and Peter doesn't want to do it but God says... What God has called clean, do not call unclean. And that symbolizes that now the Gentiles, the nations, all of us here who are not ethnically Jewish, are brought into the people of God just by believing in the gospel. Jesus brings an end to those laws that divide Israel from the nations. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So in fact, brothers and sisters, in Christ all of these purity laws in Leviticus chapters 11 to 15 are no longer binding on us as New Covenant believers, and especially not the food laws. All right. So, I you know, a few recently, I had a medical procedure, and before the procedure, I had to be on all liquid diet, and that was hard. And, and then, you know, the doc- doctor right before I'm going to have the procedure she said, "Okay, the most important question is after this is finished." What are you going to eat? What do you want? And I said, I'm going to go to Popeye's and get the shrimp sandwich. And, and they started. doctor and nurse immediately burst out laughing. They said, I thought you'd want biryani. I don't know why I wanted shrimp so bad. I love those shrimp sandwiches. Last week after church, we were going to the mall to eat, and I got a shrimp sandwich. You can have a shrimp sandwich for lunch today if that's what you want. You can have pork. You can go to the special section of one of those supermarkets, Abellas Bellas, or Spinneys, or whatever you want. Go inside the, the special section, buy whatever you want, and then bring it home, and you can have a feast. all right. If you want today, this evening, you can, eat, you, you can get some lechon. All right? and if you don't know what lechon is, you need to look it up. Okay? You can eat pork. Uh, food doesn't make us unclean. Diseases don't make us unclean, nor does childbirth or discharge or touching a dead thing or going to a funeral. However, we are still called to be distinct from the world. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus tells us we are in the world, but we must not be of the world. James talks to us in the New Testament, tells us friendship with the world is enmity with God. He tells us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Uh, Brothers and sisters, as believers who in Christ who belong to the Lord, our lives are to be markedly distinct, different, distinguished from the world around us. Now you you hear that and you say, well, Pastor Aubrey, you know, what about being a gospel ambassador What about sharing the gospel? What about evangelism? And I say, yes and amen. Our witness to the world, our light to the world is how we are distinct from them. All right. In fact, that was the case for Israel as well. By their peculiar way of life and belonging to God, they were to be a light to the nations, but they failed. May we not fail. Israel became just like the nations around them. That's why they were judged. As God's people, we are to be distinct Salt of the earth, the light of the world, different from those around us. I I think about my own life as a non Christian many years ago and 17 years ago, just living in wildness and rebellion, rebelling against the living God, living in every kind of moral sin and, and impurity. And there was one musician in the music industry, rock music industry that I was a part of, one musician whose life was utterly distinct. It was special, it was different and pure and and I kept wondering to myself, what is it that makes this guy so different? How is it that he is so separate from the things that we do? And that brother ended up taking me to church with him and praise God that his light shone into the darkness of my heart. Brothers and sisters, we must be distinct from the world, not by purity and diet, but by purity in how we live our lives, in how we love God and one another and, and witness to the world with the gospel. Not only did these laws function to keep God's people distinct from the world, but second purpose of the law, they remind us of the need for defense from defilement. All right, Defense from defilement. We must defend from defilement i said i don't think the food laws were given for health reasons but i do think some of these laws on disease and the irregular discharges which could be a result of disease i do think they had a practical health purpose it feels kind of harsh right like someone for no fault of theirs you know maybe your 14 year old son gets a skin disease and now he has to be outside the camp right that that feels radical like wow why would god do that But at the same time, you've got to realize this was camp life. They're all living in tents. It's all close quarters. And if someone had some kind of a dreaded disease that was dangerous, all of a sudden you would have an epidemic sweeping across the entire camp. And a number of people would be severely afflicted. And so we're seeing some kind of an ancient form of quarantine. There is a practical purpose to this law, right? God is caring for his people. I think even with the uh, marking of the uh, you know, mother who's recently given birth, be marking her as unclean, I think as actually God caring. Right? She's isolated. She's in her vulnerability, Is protected her and her infant. And, and I think there's some care there, and there's a practical purpose there. But I think we would miss the point of what God is trying to teach us if we consider these as only given for practical or health reasons. there's a deeper meaning to uncleanness, defilement, and all that it does. You see, I said these are not issues of moral uncleanness or moral defilement or moral impurity. They are ritual uncleanness. But they are meant to illustrate. They are meant to be a picture of moral uncleanness. Of sin and all its effects. Not all uncleanness is sin. We've seen that. These, These forms of uncleanness were just merely ritual. Not all uncleanness is sin. But all sin is unclean. And ritual uncleanness, as shown in these laws, is like a parable, a picture, an illustration, a movie, that shows us how sin works. Sin defiles. And it defiles you thoroughly and completely sin is pervasive and you can get caught in it unintentionally someone could be walking along and accidentally step on the carcass of some dead animal and now they're unclean and they didn't even realize it the same thing can be with sin you could just be walking along your life and all of a sudden sin takes a hold When defiled by sin, you cannot cure yourself. Just like with these diseases, they could not cure themselves. They had hope. And and when sin defiles you, you cannot cure yourself. The cure must come from outside yourself. And when sin takes hold of a person, it is contagious. Think Think about the guy who's defiled. Everything he touches becomes unclean. And that's how sin works in our lives. It, it spreads to others. It defiles every area of our existence. It must be removed from God's people. And it brings about in us the ultimate expression of defilement, which is death chapter 13 verses 45 and 46, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean, unclean, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean, he shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so what these guys are doing outside the camp is they're in a state of mourning, that's what it means to have torn clothes and let your hair run loose and and crying out, It, it represents a state of mourning, it represents that the person with this disease is living some kind of a living death and they're outside of the people of god friends when sin takes hold of you it's contagious it spreads to others it must be removed because it leads to death that's why we practice and we believe in the practice of church discipline of guarding the people of god from defilement that's why when someone persists in unrepentant sin they must be removed from the fellowship, from the membership of the church and from the Lord's table. That's a picture of the fact that ultimately those who are defiled by sin will be removed from God's presence forever, from the blessing of God's presence, from His heavenly city. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. That's God's heavenly city. Nor does anyone who does what is detestable or false. And it's speaking there not of ritual uncleanness, but the moral uncleanness of sin. So the pictures of ritual defilement actually illustrate for us, point us to the way that sin defiles and separates us from God and His people. But there are even deeper purposes for these laws. First, we must be distinct from the world. Second, we must defend from defilement. Third, we must be devoted to the Lord. We must be devoted to the Lord. The preacher Ligon Duncan specifies how these laws show us the need for our devotion to God. First, by showing us God's holiness. That God demands all of life from His people. He he wants His people to be wholly, completely devoted to Him. God teaches that in every area of life, He is Lord. He is a God Whose holiness impacts what what happens in the kitchen, in the maternity room, in the sick room, and the bedroom as much as what happens in the sanctuary as one scholar says. A God whose presence was felt in the kitchen was not a God you could marginalize, keep confined to a compartment of life marked spiritual. Every area of life belongs to God. Every area of life is lived in God's presence. Every area of life is ruled by God's authority. He is the God who has spoken. And these are tough commands. Imagine an ancient Israelite taking his wife outside the camp. Taking his beloved son outside the camp. Sometimes when God's book says things that are hard, our response reveals whether we really live in submission to His word. We must be devoted to the Lord. And as we examine our lives, as we examine our hearts, we find that we fail. We find that we fall short, all of us. You see, sin's defilement is always there, always lurking, always polluting, always reminding us of our filth and uncleanness, which brings us to the fourth and most important purpose of these laws, to direct our hearts to Christ. We must be distinct from the world. Yes, we must defend from defilement. We must be devoted to the Lord. But most importantly, our hearts must be directed to the only one who can make us clean, our Lord Jesus Christ. These laws are pictures. They're meant to teach, to instruct, to help us understand this concept of uncleanness and ultimately to point us to Jesus because, you see, uncleanness is not just a matter of externals. No, uncleanness is a matter of the heart. And Jesus himself says this, Mark chapter 7. He says, verse 15, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And all of us, my friends, we know this. You and I know this intuitively. We know that we come into this world with hearts that are defiled by sin. We know that we carry with us this stain of sin that is not so easily removed. The filth of our sin haunts us, it plagues us, and we realize that we are defiled from head to toe, just like the leper who cannot cleanse his spots. But there's good news. There is good news because Jesus makes us clean. We see this in Jesus' life. In his life, Jesus made the unclean clean. Think about Luke who was a doctor writing the gospel of Luke. In in chapter 5, he tells us this. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand. The Lord of the universe stretched out his hand. The Son of God stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. We see this again in Luke 8. A woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She spent all she had, but she couldn't be cured. She came up behind him and in faith, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood, seized. Jesus makes the unclean clean. The next paragraph you would see that Jesus touched a dead girl and raised her to life. Throughout his life Jesus was touching lepers, making them clean, healing this woman with blood, raising dead people. But all of that just points forward to the greatest act of cleansing that Jesus accomplished. Not only did Jesus make the unclean clean in his life by his touch but by his death he makes the unclean holy I told you there were three statuses the status of unclean and then by purification you could become clean but then by sanctification you could arrive at the ultimate status of holy belonging to God Jesus, by His death on the cross, by His perfect sacrifice, better than the sacrifice of any blood of bull and goats, Jesus, by His perfect sacrifice, purifies us, the unclean, purifies our unclean hearts from sin so that we might be made clean, sanctifies us, sanctifies us by His perfect sacrifice so that not only we are clean, but we are now holy, sacred, consecrated, belonging to God. Jesus offered himself as our substitute, the perfect sacrifice, holy and without blemish, not only to purify our filthy sinful hearts and make us clean, but to sanctify us and make us holy. Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that's you and me and what gospel grace it is that should permeate our hearts this morning so that we pursue all of life in a way that we want to be clean from sin, distinct from the world and wholly, completely devoted to our great God and Savior. And if you're here this morning, dear non-Christian friend, and all of your life you have felt that stain and filth of sin, you know you are guilty, you know that you're sinful, you know that you're stained, and you wonder, who can make me clean? I want to tell you, dear non-Christian friend, come to Jesus this morning. Like this leper, come to him and cry out, Lord, make me clean, And let Jesus touch you. Let the Savior touch you. He is willing. Be clean from your sin today. Like this woman who had been hemorrhaging for years and could find no other cure. Come in faith and take hold of Jesus this morning. Repent from your sin. Take hold of Jesus and be made clean. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Come on, sing with me. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.